Section 54 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 3, Part 1. Deliverance. He had no one. All his friends had disappeared. His dear Gottfried, who had come to his aid in times of difficulty, and whom now he so sorely needed, had gone some months before, this time forever. One evening in the summer of the last year, a letter in large handwriting, bearing the address of a distant village, had informed Louisa that her brother had died upon one of his vagabond journeys, which the little peddler had insisted on making, in spite of his ill health. He was buried there in the cemetery of the place, the last manly and serene friendship which could have supported Christophe had been swallowed up. He was left alone with his old mother, who cared nothing for his ideas, could only love him and not understand him. About him was the immense plain of Germany, the green ocean. At every attempt to climb out of it he only slipped back deeper than ever. The hostile town watched him drown. And as he was struggling, a light flashed upon him in the middle of the night. The image of Hassler, the great musician whom he had loved so much when he was a child. His fame shone over all Germany now. He remembered the promises that Hassler had made him then, and he clung to this piece of wreckage in desperation. Hassler could save him. Hostler must save him. What was he asking? Not help, nor money, nor material assistance of any kind. Nothing but understanding. Hostler had been persecuted like him. Hostler was a free man. He would understand a free man whom German mediocrity was pursuing with its spite and trying to crush. They were fighting the same battle. He carried the idea into execution as soon as it occurred to him. He told his mother that he would be away for a week, and that very evening he took the train for the great town in the north of Germany where Hustler was Kappelmeister. He could not wait. It was a last effort to breathe. Hustler was famous. His enemies had not disarmed, but his friends cried that he was the greatest musician, present, past, and future. He was surrounded by partisans and detractors who were equally absurd. As he was not of a very firm character, he had been embittered by the last and mollified by the first. He devoted his energy to writing things to annoy his critics and make them cry out. He was like an urchin playing pranks. These pranks were often in the most detestable taste. Not only did he devote his prodigious talent to musical eccentricities which made the hair of the pontiffs stand on end, but he showed a perverse predilection for queer themes, bizarre subjects, and often for equivocal and scabrous situations. In a word, for everything which could offend ordinary good sense and decency. He was quite happy when the people howled, and the people did not fail him. Even the emperor, who dabbled in art, as everyone knows, with the insolent presumption of upstarts and princes, regarded Hassler's fame as a public scandal, and let no opportunity slip of showing his contemptuous indifference to his impudent works. 
Hassler was enraged and delighted by such august opposition, which had almost become a consecration for the advanced paths in German art, and went on smashing windows. At every new folly his friends went into ecstasies and cried that he was a genius. Hassler's coterie was chiefly composed of writers, painters, and decadent critics, who certainly had the merit of representing the party of revolt against the reaction, always a menace in North Germany, of the pietistic spirit and state morality. But in the struggle the independents had been carried to a pitch of absurdity of which they were unconscious. For, if many of them were not lacking in a rude sort of talent, they had little intelligence and less taste. They could not rise above the fastidious atmosphere which they had created, and, like all cliques, they had ended by losing all sense of real life. They legislated for themselves and hundreds of fools who read their reviews and gulped down everything they were pleased to promulgate. Their adulation had been fatal to Hassler, for it had made him too pleased with himself. He accepted without examination every musical idea that came into his head, and he had a private conviction, however he might fall below his own level, he was still superior to that of all other musicians. And though that idea was only too true in the majority of cases, it did not follow that it was a very fit state of mind for the creation of great works. At heart, Hassler had a supreme contempt for everybody, friends and enemies alike, and this bitter jeering contempt was extended to himself and life in general. He was all the more driven back into his ironic skepticism because he had once believed in a number of generous and simple things. As he had not been strong enough to ward off the slow destruction of the passing of the days, nor hypocritical enough to pretend to believe in the faith he had lost, he was forever jibing at the memory of it. He was of a southern German nature, soft and indolent, not made to resist excess of fortune or misfortune, of heat or cold, needing a moderate temperature to preserve its balance. He had drifted insensibly into a lazy enjoyment of life. He loved good food, heavy drinking, idle lounging, and sensuous thoughts. His whole art smacked of these things. Although he was too gifted for the flashes of his genius not still to shine forth from his lax music, which drifted with the fashion. No one was more conscious than himself of his decay. In truth, he was the only one to be conscious of it, at rare moments which, naturally, he avoided. Besides, he was misanthropic, absorbed by his fearful moods, his egoistic preoccupations, his concern about his health. He was indifferent to everything which had formerly excited his enthusiasm or hatred. Such was the man to whom Christophe came for assistance. With what joy and hope he arrived one cold, wet morning, in the town wherein then lived the man who symbolized for him the spirit of independence in his art. He expected words of friendship and encouragement from him, words that he needed to help him to go on with the ungrateful, inevitable battle which every true artist has to wage against the world until he breathes his last, without even for one day laying down his arms. For, as Schiller has said, the only relation with the public of which a man never repents 
is war. Christophe was so impatient that he just left his bag at the first hotel he came to near the station and then ran to the theater to find out Hassler's address. Hassler lived some way from the center of the town in one of the suburbs. Christophe took an electric train and hungrily ate a roll. His heart thumped as he approached his goal. The district in which Hassler had chosen his house was almost entirely built in that strange new architecture into which young Germany has thrown an erudite and deliberate barbarism struggling laboriously to have genius. In the middle of the commonplace town, with its straight characterless streets, there suddenly appeared Egyptian hypogea, Norwegian chalets, cloisters, bastions, exhibition pavilions, pot-bellied houses, fakirs buried in the ground with expressionless faces, with only one enormous eye, dungeon gates, ponderous gates, iron hoops, golden cryptograms on the panes of grated windows, belching monsters over the front door, blue porcelain tiles plastered on in most unexpected places, variegated mosaics representing Adam and Eve, roofs covered with tiles of jarring colors, houses like citadels with castellated walls, deformed animals on the roofs, no windows on one side, and then suddenly, close to each other, gaping holes, square, red, angular, triangular like wounds, great stretches of empty wall from which suddenly there would spring a massive balcony with one window, a balcony supported by Nibelungus caryatids, balconies from which there peered through the stone balustrade two pointed heads of old men, bearded and long-haired, mermen of Boclin. On the front of one of these prisons, a pharaohesque mansion, low and one-storied, with two naked giants at the gate, the architect had written, Let the artist show his universe, which never was and yet will ever be. Seine Welt Zeiger der Künstler die niemals war nach jemals sein wird. Christophe was absorbed by the idea of seeing Hassler and looked with the eyes of amazement and under no attempt to understand. He reached the house he sought, one of the simplest, in a Carolingian style. Inside was rich luxury, commonplace enough. On the staircase was the heavy atmosphere of hot air. There was a small lift which Christophe did not use. As he wanted to gain time to prepare himself for his call by going up the four flights of stairs slowly, with his legs giving and his heart thumping with his excitement. During that short ascent, his former interview with Hustler, his childish enthusiasm, the image of his grandfather were as clearly in his mind as though it had all been yesterday. It was nearly eleven when he rang the bell. He was received by a sharp maid with a serva padrona manner, who looked at him impertinently and began to say that Herr Hassler could not see him, as Herr Hassler was tired. Then the naive disappointment expressed in Christophe's face amused her, for after making an unabashed scrutiny of him from head to foot, she softened suddenly and introduced him to Hassler's study, and said she would go and see if Herr Hassler would receive him. Thereupon she gave him a little wink, and closed the door. On the walls were a few Impressionist paintings and some gallant French engravings of the eighteenth century, 
for Hassler pretended to some knowledge of all the arts, and Manet and Watteau were joined together in his taste in accordance with the prescription of his coterie. The same mixture of styles appeared in the furniture, and a very fine Louis Cannes bureau was surrounded by new art armchairs and an oriental divan with a mountain of multicolored cushions. The doors were ornamented with mirrors, and Japanese bric-a-brac covered the shelves and the mantelpiece, on which stood a bust of Hassler. In a bowl on a round table was a profusion of photographs of singers, female admirers, and friends, with witty remarks and enthusiastic interjections. The bureau was incredibly untidy. The piano was open. The shelves were dusty, and half-smoked cigars were lying about everywhere. In the next room Christophe heard a cross voice grumbling. It was answered by the shrill tones of the little maid. It was clear that Hassler was not very pleased at having to appear. It was clear also that the young woman had decided that Hassler should appear, and she answered him with extreme familiarity, and her shrill voice penetrated the walls. Christophe was rather upset at hearing some of the remarks she made to her master, but Hassler did not seem to mind. On the contrary, it rather seemed as though her impertinence amused him, and while he went on growling, he chaffed the girl and took a delight in exciting her. At last Christophe heard the door open, and still growling and chaffing, Hassler came shuffling. He entered. Christophe's heart sank. He recognized him. Would to God he had not! It was Hassler, and yet it was not he. He still had his great smooth brow, his face as unwrinkled as that of a babe, but he was bald, stout, yellowish, sleepy-looking. His lower lip drooped a little, his mouth looked bored and sulky. He hunched his shoulders, buried his hands in the pockets of his open waistcoat. Old shoes flopped on his feet, his shirt was bagged above his trousers, which he had not finished buttoning. He looked at Christophe with his sleepy eyes, in which there was no light as the young man murmured his name. He bowed automatically, said nothing, nodded towards a chair, and with a sigh sank down on the divan and piled the cushions about himself. Christophe repeated, "'I have already had the honour. You were kind enough. My name is Christophe Kraft.' Hostler lay back on the divan, with his legs crossed, his hands clasped together on his right knee, which he held up to his chin as he replied, "'I don't remember.' Christophe's throat went dry, and he tried to remind him of their former meeting. Under any circumstances it would have been difficult for him to talk of memories so intimate. Now it was torture for him. He bungled his sentences, could not find words, said absurd things which made him blush— Hustler let him flounder on and never ceased to look at him with his vague, indifferent eyes. When Christophe had reached the end of his story, Hustler went on rocking his knee in silence for a moment, as though he were waiting for Christophe to go on. Then he said, Yes, that does not make us young again, and stretched his legs. After a yawn, he added, I beg pardon, did not sleep supper at the theatre last night, and yawned again. Christophe hoped that Hassler would make some reference to what he had just told him, but Hassler, whom the story had not interested at all, said nothing about it, and he did not ask Christophe anything about his life. 
When he had done yawning, he asked, "'Have you been in Berlin long?' "'I arrived this morning,' said Christophe. "'Ah,' said Hassler, without any surprise, "'what hotel?' He did not seem to listen to the reply, but got up lazily and pressed an electric bell. "'Allow me,' he said. The little maid appeared with her impertinent manner. "'Kitty,' said he, "'are you trying to make me go without breakfast this morning?' "'You don't think I'm going to bring it here while you have someone with you?' "'Why not?' he said with a wink and a nod in Christophe's direction. "'He feeds my mind. I must feed my body.' "'Aren't you ashamed to have someone watching you eat? Like an animal in a menagerie?' Instead of being angry, Hustler began to laugh and corrected her. "'Like a domestic animal,' he went on. "'But do bring it. I'll eat my shame with it.' Christophe saw that Hostler was making no attempt to find out what he was doing, and tried to lead the conversation back. He spoke of the difficulties of provincial life, of the mediocrity of the people, the narrow-mindedness, and of his own isolation. He tried to interest him in his moral distress, but Hostler was sunk deep in the divan, with his head lying back on a cushion and his eyes half-closed, and let him go on talking without even seeming to listen or he would raise his eyelids for a moment and pronounce a few coldly ironical words, some ponderous jest at the expense of provincial people, which cut short Christophe's attempts to talk more intimately. Kitty returned with the breakfast tray—coffee, butter, ham, etc. She put it down crossly on the desk in the middle of the untidy papers. Christophe waited until she had gone before he went on with his sad story, which he had such difficulty in continuing— Hostler drew the tray towards himself. He poured himself out some coffee and sipped at it. Then, in a familiar and cordial, though rather contemptuous way, he stopped Christophe in the middle of a sentence to ask if he would take a cup. Christophe refused. He tried to pick up the thread of his sentence, but he was more and more nonplussed and did not know what he was saying. He was distracted by the sight of Hostler with his plate under his chin, like a child, gorging pieces of bread and butter and slices of ham which he held in his fingers. However, he did succeed in saying that he composed, that he had had an overture in the Judith of Hebel performed. Hassler listened absently. Was? What? he asked. Christoph repeated the title. Ach, so, so. Ah, good, good, said Hassler, dipping his bread and his fingers into his cup. That was all. Christophe was discouraged and was on the point of getting up and going, but he thought of his long journey in vain, and summoning up all his courage, he murmured a proposal that he should play some of his works to Hustler. At the first mention of it, Hustler stopped him. "'No, no, I don't know anything about it,' he said, with his chaffing and rather insulting irony. "'Besides, I haven't the time.' Tears came to Christophe's eyes but he had vowed not to leave until he had Hustler's opinion about his work, he said with a mixture of confusion and anger. "'I beg your pardon, but you promised once to hear me. I came to see you for that from the other end of Germany. You shall hear me.' Hustler, who was not used to such ways, looked at the awkward young man, who was furious, blushing, and near tears. That amused him, and wearily shrugging his shoulders, he pointed to the piano, and said with an air of comic resignation, "'Well, then, there you are. 
On that he lay back on his divan, like a man who is going to sleep, smoothed out his cushions, put them under his outstretched arms, half-closed his eyes, opened them for a moment to take stock of the size of the roll of music which Christophe had brought from one of his pockets, gave a little sigh, and lay back to listen listlessly. Christophe was intimidated and mortified, but he began to play. It was not long before Hostler opened his eyes and ears with the professional interest of the artist who is struck in spite of himself by a beautiful thing. At first he said nothing and lay still, but his eyes became less dim and his sulky lips moved. Then he suddenly woke up, growling his surprise and approbation. He only gave inarticulate interjections, but the form of them left no doubt as to his feelings, and they gave Christophe an inexpressible pleasure. Hassler forgot to count the number of pages that had been played and were left to be played. When Christophe had finished a piece, he said, "'Go on! Go on!' He was beginning to use human language. "'That's good! Good!' he exclaimed to himself. "'Famous! Awfully famous!' Schrecklich famos. But damn! he growled in astonishment. What is it? He had risen on his seat, was stretching for wind, making a trumpet with his hand, talking to himself, laughing with pleasure, or at certain odd harmonies, just putting out his tongue as though to moisten his lips. An unexpected modulation had such an effect on him that he got up suddenly with an exclamation and came and sat at the piano by Christophe's side. He did not seem to notice that Christophe was there. He was only concerned with the music, and when the piece was finished, he took the book and began to read the page again, then the following pages, and went on ejaculating his admiration and surprise, as though he had been alone in the room. "'The devil,' he said. "'Where did the little beast find that?' He pushed Christophe away with his shoulders, and himself played certain passages. He had a charming touch on the piano, very soft, caressing, and light. Christophe noticed his fine, long, well-tended hands, which were a little morbidly aristocratic and out of keeping with the rest. Hustler stopped at certain chords and repeated them, winking and clicking with his tongue. He hummed with his lips, imitating the sounds of the instruments, and went on interspersing the music with his apostrophes in which pleasure and annoyance were mingled. He could not help having a secret initiative, an unavowed jealousy, and at the same time he greedily enjoyed it all. Although he went on talking to himself, as though Christophe did not exist, Christophe, blushing with pleasure, could not help taking Hostler's exclamations to himself, and he explained what he had tried to do. At first Hostler seemed not to pay any attention to what the young man was saying, and went on thinking out loud. Then something that Christophe said struck him, and he was silent, with his eyes still fixed on the music, which he turned over as he listened without seeming to hear. Christophe grew more and more excited, and at last he plumped into confidence and talked with naive enthusiasm about his projects and his life. Hostler was silent, and as he listened he slipped back into his irony. He had let Christophe take the book from his hands, with his elbow on the rack of the piano and his hand on his forehead, he looked at Christophe, who was explaining his work with youthful ardor and eagerness. And he smiled bitterly as he thought of his own beginning, his own hopes, and of Christophe's hopes, and all the disappointments that lay in wait for him. 
Christophe spoke with his eyes cast down, fearful of losing the thread of what he had to say. Hostler's silence encouraged him. He felt that Hostler was watching him and not missing a word that he said, and he thought he had broken the ice between them, and he was glad at heart. When he had finished, he shyly raised his head, confidently, too, and looked at Hostler. All the joy welling in him was frozen on the instant, like two early birds, when he saw the gloomy, mocking eyes that looked into his without kindness. He was silent. After an icy moment, Hostler spoke dully. He had changed once more. He affected a sort of harshness towards the young man. He teased him cruelly about his plans, his hopes of success, as though he were trying to chaff himself, now that he had recovered himself. He set himself coldly to destroy his faith in life, his faith in art, his faith in himself. Bitterly he gave himself as an example, speaking of his actual works in an insulting fashion. "'Hogwaste,' he said. "'That is what these swine want. Do you think there are ten people in the world who love music? Is there a single one?' "'There is myself,' said Christophe emphatically. Hassler looked at him, shrugged his shoulders, and said wearily, "'You will be like the rest. You will do as the rest have done.' You will think of success, of amusing yourself, like the rest, and you will be right. Christophe tried to protest, but Hassler cut him short. He took the music and began bitterly to criticize the works which he had first been praising. Not only did he harshly pick out the real carelessness, the mistakes in writing, the faults of taste or of expression which had escaped the young man, but he made absurd criticisms— criticisms which might have been made by the most narrow and antiquated of musicians, from which he himself, Hassler, had had to suffer all his life. He asked what was the sense of it all. He did not even criticize. He denied. It was as though he were trying desperately to efface the impression that the music had made on him in spite of himself. Christophe was horrified and made no attempt to reply. How could he reply to absurdities which he blushed to hear on the lips of a man whom he esteemed and loved? Besides, Hostler did not listen to him. He stopped at that, stopped dead, with the book in his hands, shut, no expression in his eyes and his lips drawn down in bitterness. At last he said, as though he had once more forgotten Christophe's presence, Ah! The worst misery of all is that there is not a single man who can understand you. Christophe was racked with emotion. He turned suddenly, laid his hand on Hassler's, and with love in his heart he repeated, There is myself. But Hassler did not move his hand, and if something stirred in his heart for a moment at that boyish cry, no light shone in his dull eyes as they looked at Christophe. Irony and evasion were in the ascendant. He made a ceremonious and comic little bow in acknowledgment. Honored, he said. He was thinking, Do you, though? Do you think I have lost my life for you? He got up, threw the book on the piano, and went with his long spindle legs and sat on the divan again. Christophe had divined his thoughts and had felt the savage insult in them, and he tried proudly to reply that a man does not need to be understood by everybody. Certain souls are worth a whole people. They think for it, and what they have thought the people have to think. But Hustler did not listen to him. 
He had fallen back into his apathy, caused by the weakening of the life slumbering in him. Christoph, too sane to understand the sudden change, felt that he had lost. But he could not resign himself to losing after seeming to be so near victory. He made desperate efforts to excite Hassler's attention once more. He took up his music-book and tried to explain the reason for the irregularities which Hassler had remarked. Hassler lay back on the sofa and preserved a gloomy silence. He neither agreed nor contradicted. He was only waiting for him to finish. Christoph saw that there was nothing more to be done. He stopped short in the middle of a sentence. He rolled up his music and got up. Hassler got up, too. Christoph was shy and ashamed and murmured excuses. Hassler bowed slightly with a certain haughty and bored distinction, coldly held out his hand politely, and accompanied him to the door without a word of suggestion that he should stay or come again. End of section 54